You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, friends, good morning again to you, and welcome back for uh, another week of a sermon series that we took a brief break from due to all the snow escapades over the course of the last uh, several weeks, uh, a sermon series that you can see by way of the screens behind me called Reform. Reform. You see, uh, one of the things that Jesus did during the course of his ministry is he reformed, he reshaped, he sort of corrected and re-guided us in regards to aspects of our faith that were not quite aligned with how we ought to think about our faith and our relationship with God. And the reason why we're doing this sermon series here in 2022 is because for anyone who's paying attention, you know that a lot of the reforms that Jesus made during the Gospels didn't take. They didn't last very long. We found ourselves really quickly in churches and sort of organized religion falling right back into the same bad habits that Jesus came to fix. For example, one of the primary things that you'll see Jesus do over and over again throughout the course of the Gospels is he preaches over and over again that when it comes to faith, what matters most is not rules, but a relationship. That's the thing Jesus is after, not rules, not You're not made right with God by sort of following all the do's and don'ts lists perfectly. It's a relationship. And yet, legalism is alive and well in many churches you step into today. Another reform Jesus came to bring was the way in which we approach Scripture all together. Jesus, uh, specifically in Mark chapter 5, says that we ought to treat Scripture not as an end, but as a means to an end, that scripture is the place, it's the, it's the thing that sort of helps connect us to God, but it is not God. And yet, today there are a number of Christians and churches who preach a stronger devotion to the Bible over Jesus. We also see Jesus in a number of different places talk about the importance of unity, the importance of making space for differences, and trying to be one in the midst of our diverse thoughts and opinions. And, well, we all know how that is going right now. And so the whole goal, the whole purpose of this sermon series is to make sure, I want to make sure that the faith that I am practicing that the Christianity that I am following actually aligns with Jesus. I want to make sure that the Christianity that we're practicing week in and week out actually has the Christ in its name, right? And so what this is going to require is us to sort of revisit a lot of the reforms Jesus made to faith to see where do we here today need to shift, need to pivot, in order to be closer aligned with the true message of who he actually was. Today we're going to tackle another uh, reform. We're going to tackle another one that you heard referenced just a couple moments ago uh, in the scripture passage that Liz just read. Here in uh, uh, John chapter 14 specifically, what you'll find is one of the repetitive themes that shows up in Jesus' preaching and his ministry, sort of calling people. He's, he's, He's inviting people into a faith that is not just internal, but external. 
Over and over and over again, Jesus is preaching a faith that's not just vertical, so it's not just me and Jesus, but it matters how you live your life. It matters your relationship with other people. This is not the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus calls us to a faith that is not just theological, but practical. Another reformer uh, in church history who noticed this same thing creeping into churches today uh, showed up in the 1700s, a guy by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley, for those of you who don't know, he was the founder of the Methodist movement. That's the denomination, that's the tribe that we hail from uh, here at the peak. And John Wesley, uh, during his time in the church in England, he was discovering when he was looking around that church folks are really, really good at the spiritual stuff. We're really good at the me and God stuff. Not so good at the horizontal stuff. Right? So uh, John Wesley used to say this. He used to say, a well-balanced faith, a really healthy faith is comprised of two things. It's comprised of acts of piety. So piety, pious, think of like worship, reading scripture, praying, journaling, all the things that you do when you're trying to just connect with you and Jesus to start your day. Daily devotions, that sort of stuff. But true faith, Jesus' faith, the one he's calling us to, is one that's an equal balance of acts of piety and acts of mercy. Serving, mission, caring for those around us, right? It's got to be both. It's got to be both. Our spiritual diet has to be comprised of both. Otherwise, it gets all out of whack. If you have too much fiber in your diet, well, we're not going to go down that road. Anyway, if you have a jacked up diet, don't work too well. Don't work too well. Same goes for faith. And just to make sure as we're sort of, again, we're just starting out this morning, just to make sure we're capturing the urgency of this conversation, the urgency of this conversation. I used to, several years ago, way in the beginning of uh, my ministry, I started, I started a, a group, I started a ministry here called Pub with the Pastor. Um, some of you went to that. Um, really, I did for two reasons. One, because I just wanted to make sure that uh, if you were a Christian who didn't know if it's okay to come in here and like beer, hey, it's okay, totally fine. Um, kidding. Kind of. Anyway, uh, the main reason I started is because I wanted to provide a space outside of church for folks to engage and ask questions. Ask questions theologically, ask questions about their own relationship with the Bible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the questions that showed up in, these, in this bar all the time, all the time, some version of this question would show up all the time. It was something like this. It was something like, at the very end of the day, which one does Jesus care about more? Right beliefs? or right actions. At the end of the day, you got several different religions, you got tons of different denominations who all claim, no, we believe the right thing, no, we have right belief. Which one really matters the most to Jesus? Is it right belief or is it right actions? What you're gonna see in a moment, friends, is that both of them matter to Jesus. To be very fair, both of them matter to Jesus. But if you had to pick, you forced him to choose, it's right actions. It's living rightly. It's not just believing all the right stuff. It's doing the right stuff. Why? How do I know that? Because, friends, what you do and how you live says way more about what you actually believe than your words ever will. What you do and how you live and the things you go about, the way you go about your business 
says way more about what you actually believe about God, about yourself, about the world, than your words or your Facebook posts ever will. And if you don't believe me, Jesus is going to tell us that. So let's dig in. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along with me here this morning, go ahead and uh, grab those or grab your smart devices. We're going to return back to John chapter 14. Those of you who are tuning in online, I encourage you to do so as well so you can stay with us as we're sort of digging into this chapter uh, specifically. John chapter 14, just to give us all a little bit of context, is uh, it's a really robust chapter. It takes place sort of towards the tail end of Jesus' ministry. And so he has a bunch of different sermons and a bunch of different messages, a bunch of different little devotionals he's giving to his disciples. And so John chapter 14 is packed full of stuff. It's packed full of content. Jesus is teaching all kinds of different stuff on the Holy Spirit and about just all kinds of stuff. But for the purposes of our conversation for today, I want to hone in on one verse in particular. Because when I read this passage afresh and anew this week, there was one verse in particular that really jumped off the page. And that was verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, I assure you, I assure you, that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. In fact, they'll do even greater works than these because I got to bounce. Like, I got stuff to do. Like, I got other stuff in the mission that I got to go intend to. Like, I got to go be with the Father. So, like, I'm leaving it to y'all. Whoever really believes in me will do the works that I do. In this moment, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I don't actually, I don't, don't, don't listen to what people say they believe. I mean, listen to it, but like, if you want a clearer indicator of who my real followers are, the people who really get down with my message, the way you can figure out who those folks are is it's the people who are acting like me. They're doing stuff like me. And here in this moment, what Jesus is doing here, another move I think Jesus is making is he's differentiating between what it means to be a fan of Jesus versus a follower of Jesus. You catch my drift? You know where I'm going with this? For sure, for sure, during Jesus' time, there were people who encountered him. Maybe they were in the marketplace and they heard something he was saying and they were like, hmm, that sounds interesting. Or they like saw him do some sort of miracle or something and they got really excited about who this Jesus was. They got really, they got down with it. They were like, oh my, like I support his message. I support his platform. I support all the things he's about. And then someone was like, yeah, that's great. Are you excited? Do you want to come and follow Jesus with us? And they're like, I, we got soccer practice at four. I'll be a fan. Like, do you guys have t-shirts? Do you have merch? Where's the merch table? Is there, like, little, like, little banners and things? Like, I'm happy to put bumpers there. I'm, I'm happy to do all that stuff. But, like, I got, like, a lot of obligations, and I got a lot of things going on. I just, I can't follow, but, like, I'll cheer for him. I'll cheer for him. I think about this a lot, uh, and I think about this a lot because I think I wrestle all the time with the question of if I lived during Jesus' day, which would I be? Would I be a follower? There's a, a, every part of me wants to believe I would be a follower. I would be someone who's willing to quit their job, who's willing to move, who's willing to give up my comfort, all of it for the sake of this Jesus. And yet, I also know how tempting it is to just be a fan, to stay at home, to be like, yo, like, I'm with you, 
like I'm with you, totally support it and agree with it. Not going to get involved with it, but I'm totally with you. Super tempting. Super tempting. I think this is the question that Christians need to ask today. I think this is the question that uh, we're at a sort of a pivotal moment in the church today, in Christianity today. I think Christians need to take seriously this question of if Jesus showed up today, which one would we be? Fans or followers? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, like, Kyle, that's a provocative question, and I'm willing to ask it, but, like, I don't actually, how do I figure out the answer to that? Like, how do I know which one I'm in? And this is where I actually think verse 12 is super helpful because the answer Jesus seems to be giving is the clearest indicator as to whether or not I'm a fan or a follower is my life. Not what I say. Not what I post on Facebook. It's my life. It's what I'm doing. It's how I'm living. That's the clearest indicator as to where I am. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Almost always, the natural next question is, okay, fine, I'll bite, but how in the world am I supposed to do this kind of stuff that Jesus did? Like, homeboy was, like, raising people from the dead and helping blind people see and helping sick people. Oftentimes, following Jesus is, like, working out next to this guy. You been there? You been there? Motivated, ready to go, ready to rock. Then you walk over to the bench press, and then this guy's standing next to you, and you go, okay, going home. I had to put a little pair of shorts on him because, well, it's church. Okay, moving on. Take it off the screen. But it can be super tempting. It can be super tempting when you watch the type of life that Jesus lived and the types of things that he did. And he says, he has the audacity to say what he says, that true believers do the things that I do. It can be super tempting to look at that and go, how in God's green earth am I supposed to do and be that? And this is where I want to offer you a helpful piece of advice. A helpful piece of advice. Whenever you are trying to adapt and apply Jesus's, not not just his message, but his actions to your life, it is pivotal. You and I learn how to do so, not literally, but contextually. I'm going to say that again. When you're trying to apply Jesus' life to yours, it's super, super important that you learn how to apply it, not literally, but contextually. Why? Because if you try to live your entire life applying it literally, you'll be super discouraged. Because you can't do literally the same things Jesus did. But what you can do is contextualize what Jesus did in your own setting, in your own relationship, in your own workplace, in your own family, right? This is why whenever you go to conferences or you hear a speaker or you read a book and you're like, okay, I'm just going to do exactly what he or she did and hopefully my life will turn out the same way. And it doesn't, right? It never does. And that's not the point. You're supposed to go to these conferences and go, okay, how can I apply what he or she did in my own context, in my own life, in my own way? And friends, why this is so pivotal, why it's so pivotal is because one of the biggest traps that Christians fall into all the time is we watch Jesus' life, we watch the types of things that he did, and we fall into this, I can't, so I won't mindset. Well, I can't do any of that stuff, so I just won't try. I can't get on that level, so I just won't. And so whenever you find yourself in that place, 
okay? Whenever you find yourself in that sort of uh, way of thinking, I want you to just do a quick substitution, okay? Do a quick substitution. Instead of getting sort of all caught up and stopped up on I can't so I won't, instead what I want you to do is I want you to substitute a new phrase into your spiritual practice, a new mantra, which is, okay, I can't do exactly this. I can't feed thousands of people, but I can. And then you think about what are the ways in which you can do similar things that Jesus did in your own life. I'll give you some examples. Ready? I'll give you some examples. So check this out. This is just a quick Quick, uh, short list of just a handful of things. This is not all the things Jesus did. This is just a handful of things I just picked out of thin air, okay? And so you may not be able to heal sick people. You may not be here walking into church today with supernatural abilities to heal sick people. Nor do you, you might not be able, a healthcare professional, a doctor, a nurse, or someone who has the ability to care for and heal sick people, okay? You may not be those things. But you know what you can do? You can encourage a health worker right now. You can encourage the people who are fighting on the front lines to keep all of us safe and to keep all of us healthy and are burnt out to no end because of all the different cases and people they're seeing all the time. You can do that. You can help support the people who are healing the sick. Feed the hungry. You may not be able to. You may not have like a whole big old pot of cash to go and feed a ton of people or have the ability to miraculously turn a bag of cheese that's into a, a meal that's going to feed thousands and thousands of people. You may not have that skill, but you know what you do have the ability to do? You do have the ability. If you don't have the ability to feed thousands of people, you do have the ability to partner with organizations that are. Western White Crisis Ministry, right down the road, feeds hundreds of people, hundreds of people every single month. You can't do it by yourself, but you can partner with them and help make that happen, right? Those of you who are parents with kiddos, you can get up with your school and you can find out what programs your school puts on to help uh, hungry children not go home without meals. Almost every school has them now, and so you can find a way to partner, find a way to contribute to that work. Comfort the brokenhearted. Jesus does all the time with folks uh, whose spirits are crushed. He comes to them, he comforts them, he cares for them. You may not be a licensed therapist or a counselor, you may be someone who, let's just be honest, you're awkward with words. You don't know what to say. People are stumbling. They are in a pit, and you just, I, I'm sorry, the, the thing happened to you in the thing. Right? So you just, just like some of us, are, we just can't sort of get out. That's fine. That's fine. You might not be able to do those things. But you know what you can do? You can stick by them and check in on them, not ditch them in the middle of their grief. About three or four years ago, we did a sermon series on grief, and we did a survey of folks. We asked what the hardest part of it was, and by far, the most common answer was the hardest part about going through grief was that no one knew what to say to me in my divorce, when my mom died, when I got diagnosed with this illness. And so I not only had this awful thing happen to me, and, but I also lost a friendship because no one knew what to do with me. You may not be able to comfort the brokenhearted with beautiful, poetic words, but you can with your presence. Serve the poor. Walk on water. I mean, like, again, we read these passages. We look at the walk on water, for example. We're like, okay, obviously, that's a clear-cut example. I can't do that. But you know what you can do? When God calls you to something, when God calls you to step out on faith, you can do so. You can do so. Understanding that maybe, just maybe, 
there's other people watching me step out in faith. Maybe it's my, my children. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a girlfriend. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's whoever it is. They might be watching me take a step in faith, and then it causes them to go, huh, I need to sort of rethink my whole take on faith and such. So friends, every single time you have that voice pop in, and you'll have it when you leave today, you'll be like, okay, got some renewed vigor, I'm going to sort of start doing stuff and, le- and doing deeds and doing works and living a life like Jesus. Whenever you hear that voice creeping that says, you can't, so you shouldn't even bother, I want you to replace it. I can't do that. You're right. But I can do fill in the blank. Now, I feel like it's only appropriate that before you leave today, I go ahead and forewarn you of a couple of obstacles that are going to show up almost immediately whenever you decide to do this, okay? I want to give you a couple, I want to sort of give you a couple of uh, precautions because uh, so when you leave here and these obstacles show up, you can go, ha, Kyle told me you'd show up, and then you can sort of navigate around them, right? Because there's a couple of things that show up immediately whenever you have this sort of renewed flame or fire to sort of start going, okay, you're right, yes, faith has just sort of been a cerebral thing, it's been this internal thing, I'm going to make it more external, I'm going to make it more action-driven. The first thing, the first thing that always trips us up is a logistical obstacle, which is we don't know where to start, right? You don't know where to start. It's kind of like working out. You're like, I don't know where to start. I don't know how, like, when, do, I, do I do legs first? Or like, I mean, you're just like, you don't know where to start. It's been so long. You've been out of the rhythm. You don't know how to get back re-engaged. And so the first obstacle you're going to face is a logistical one. You don't know where to start. You don't know what things to do. And so here's my advice. Here's honestly my best advice for you. You ready? Just start trying stuff. Nothing really uh, beautifully wisdom or phenomenal about that, but just start trying stuff. Try things until you find the thing. Try things until you find the thing. Try the different, the different things that we just, that list we just did. Start trying stuff. Start trying different areas or different ways in which you can serve and, and, and participate in this kingdom work. And just see what fits. See what connects. You're going to try stuff. It ain't going to work. And so you just sort of move on. You're like, oh, this is, I'm not good at this. I need to move on to something else. Keep going until you find the thing that works. This is something I say to new members all the time. We've got a new membership class happening later today, actually. And what I say at almost every single new membership class is I say, when you're trying to get plugged in, you're trying to get more connected into this space, just start doing stuff until you find the good fit, right? Just start trying different ministry areas until you find one that really connects with your passions and your gift sets. Start as a greeter. Start as an usher. And if you find out that you smile like Chandler, maybe the coffee team. Maybe the coffee team. Try stuff. Try stuff, and maybe just maybe throughout that process, you'll find the particular thing that God's calling you to that you could really make a difference in, right? I think one of the things that um, I was really inspired by a couple of weeks ago uh, was um, many, all of us by now heard the news of Betty White, uh, and I uh, am one of those people where I didn't really realize how much of a fan I was of Betty White until she was no longer with us. Uh, and uh, Betty White lived such an extraordinary life. She's 
not, died at 99 years old, almost turned 100, um, just so well known for a whole bunch of different things. And so when she passed, I remember I was reading a couple different articles about her and whatnot, and I came across this really interesting factoid that I was like, oh my gosh, like I never knew that. Did you know? Uh, so she's so well known now, she's so popular and so famous now. Did you know Betty White didn't land her first real gig until she was 63 years old? Until she was 63 that she got noticed and she landed the role on Golden Girls. And she's also not alone. Like, I was just sort of, I went down this rabbit hole with actors. Like, Morgan Freeman didn't land his big, big iconic role until he was 50. Viola Davis didn't land hers until she was 43. Steve Carell, any Office fans out there? He didn't have any substantial roles whatsoever until his mid-40s when he finally landed uh, the role of Michael Scott on The Office and made us all cringe forever. I think after I went down that sort of rabbit hole, I just sort of took away the principle of that is you just try stuff. Honestly, that's the thing. That, that's what sort of sets apart, I think, the folks, those of us who feel like we've got a lot of meaning, we've got a lot of purpose is, sure, are there some people who just sort of woke up out of bed one day and stepped and like tripped into like, oh my gosh, this is a great fit for everything and everyone. Wow, that's great. But for uh, 99 of the rest of the 100, they have to try stuff over and over and over again, fail at a bunch of stuff over and over again until they're like, holy cow, this is what I was meant to do. This is where I was meant to be. This is where I can make a difference, Jesus. So try stuff. Try things until you find the thing. Now, the other obstacle is this. So the first obstacle I gave you is sort of like more logistical. This one's more emotional. The other obstacle you're going to face whenever you sort of set out to try to make those course corrections in your own faith and in your own life is more emotional. And I actually wrote about this on social earlier this week. Um, friends, one of the other things, and there's no like way to sort of sugarcoat it or there's no way to sort of like makes it, make it fancy. One of the other biggest obstacles you're going to face whenever you try to make shifts in your life so that your faith is not just cognitive but it's actually practical is, and again, there's no fancy way to say this, is the times and the moments where you just don't feel it. You just don't feel like it. You've been through a season like that before? Going through one right now? You're not alone. Where you just don't, you ain't feeling it. I wrote about this on social this week, that for the last several weeks, I just haven't been feeling it. Feeling what? Any of it. <laughs> There have been more days than not where I haven't felt like being a good Christian. I haven't felt like being a good pastor. I haven't felt like being a good husband, father, friend, you name it. I just haven't felt like it. And I think this is a wonderful opportunity to correct a misnomer that I think exists in a lot of people's minds. I think sometimes people, those of us inside the church, we look at other people, we get jealous, we get angry because we're like, oh, well, Faith is so easy for them because they're just always feeling it. They're just always waking up and like, Jesus. And then they just sort of move on with the rest of their day. And we sort of fall into that assumption that for others, it's just easier to believe. It's easier to engage. It's easier to connect with God than it is for me. But friends, what I'm finding to be true is the holiest people I know Seriously, the people whose faith I admire, that I want to emulate, I want to be like them, every single one of them has to choose Jesus all over again every single day. 
every single day. And so through this experience, I've been learning something. I've been learning something about myself, and I've been learning something about feelings. I've been learning that uh, there are moments when I need to listen to my feelings, right? Uh, feelings are super important. They, they, they teach us things. They reveal things to us. There are times when I need to listen to my feelings, and there are also times when my feelings are deceiving. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? When I wrote, this, wrote about this on social, uh, someone commented, and I thought just nailed it perfectly. She said, I'm learning that feelings are indicators, not dictators. I love that. love that. Your feelings are important. But sometimes, sometimes, what you're feeling is just a byproduct of everything going on in the world or being burnt out or maybe you're exhausted or whatever, and they sort of overreact to whatever you're going through, the stimuli you're going on. They sort of teach you and tell you something that is not true. And so in those moments, you want to know what you're supposed to do? In those moments, what you and I are supposed to do is choose our commitments over our feelings. you got to choose who and what you committed to over your feelings. In this season of life I'm in right now, I'm having to wake up every day and remember, I don't care if I don't feel like it. I committed to being a good father. I committed to being a good husband. I committed to being a follower of Jesus. And that's more important to me than my mood for today. I'm serious about this. Like, this is something that actually is, it's a scary thought. It's a scary, like, if you, if you live your life completely dictated to by your feelings, what you'll find is you'll wake up 10, 15, 20 years from now, and you'll realize that you didn't actually have control over your life. Your mood did. Isn't that crazy? I'll give you an example. Some of you uh, who are listening to this, or maybe you're tuning in online, uh, for you, um, a, a reality you face uh, is seasonal depression. It's something that you encounter all the time. Uh, it's something that comes in waves. And I felt led to speak on this right now because especially in January and February, it's always dark and cold and bleh. So, like, sorry, if you're a January fan, we could talk about it after church. Anyway, I've never heard someone say they're a January fan. Uh, they're a Christmas fan, winter fan, never January. Anyway, and so it's common. It's common for folks to experience and go through some seasonal depression during this time. And one of the things that I coach people on, one of the things I talk to people about is I say things. I say, listen, you want to know what a really good remedy is for uh, depression when you're going through it? You want to know what a really good antidote for depression is? Yes, it is therapy. Yes, it is medication. And you want to know another one to add on to it? Serving other people. Serving other people. One of the things that I know about my own experience with depression when I've had it in sort of different seasons and portions of my life is that depression has this way of pulling me inward. Like it pulls me into this really scary place where I'm just so inwardly focused. Like I can't even think or even conceive of anyone or anything else. But what does serving other people do? It pulls you out of yourself. It's really hard to serve someone else and to be thinking about yourself the entire time. You can do it, but it's hard. And friends, the reason why, in particular, I want to say that today is because if ever there was a time, golly, if ever there was a time when the world needed Christians to get out of their own head and get back into the world, it is right now. 
Never in my lifetime has the world been more starving for hope, starving for light, starving for love. And who's supposed to be the instruments of that again? Who is supposed to be the witnesses and the ambassadors of that again? Oh, yeah. Us. You. Me. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan, uh, and that, that little uh, meme went around for a while where Frodo goes, I really just wish all of this craziness would have happened in someone else's lifetime. You feel that? You feel that right now? But I'm sorry. That ain't the way it shook out. And God's got you. You are who God has. Your number's been called. Time is now. If you're waiting for it to show up from somewhere or somebody else, you're going to be waiting forever. It's you. And before we close today, I'm going to give you a place to start. I'm going to give you a really easy on-ramp for it. You ready? A couple years ago, uh, one of the things that our church started uh, was a campaign called Peak of Good Neighboring. How many of you are here when we did Peak of Good Neighboring? What it was is, so we live, if those of you who are tuning in online, if you don't live here in the area, uh, we inhabit a place called Apex. Apex is known as the Peak of Good Living. It's on t-shirts, bumper stickers, it's on the water tower. So cute. Anyway, <laughs> we said, that's great, that's fine. But one of the things that we're really passionate about, one of the legacies that we want to have on this place is we want Apex to be known not just as the peak of good living, but the peak of good neighboring. We want, maybe it's a ridiculous sort of hope, but we want by way of our witness to change the culture and the genetic makeup of this place so much so that when people move into it, they're like, holy cow, this is the first place I've ever lived where people actually genuinely care about me. And so we had a bunch of different initiatives, a bunch of different things that we tackled in order to make this happen. And this week, we are launching phase 2.0. Phase 2.0 of the Peak of Good Neighboring is called the Good Neighbor Initiative. You can find out more about it by going to this link below. So if you're watching this online, bring it up on a separate browser and have it up. Or if you're here, feel free to take your phone out and uh, search it so that you have it before you leave. When you go to that website, thepeakchurch.org slash goodneighbor, uh, what it'll take you to is a Google form. And on this Google form, you can do one of two things. One of two things. One and or. You can do both of them, actually. On this form, you can nominate someone. Nominate someone who in your life you know really, really needs a good neighbor. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a healthcare worker. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't care who it is. Just someone who desperately needs a good neighbor to show up out of the blue and just, pardon my language, but give a damn and care about them. Do something, some random act of service or kindness to let them know that the universe cares. And while you're at it, you can not only nominate someone, but you can nominate yourself to be a good neighbor. You could say, yes, sign me up, pair me with somebody that I most likely will not know, and we give you ideas by way of the form. Without breaking confidentiality, uh, we invite you uh, to put ideas, different things about this person that might be helpful to know to the person who's trying to bless them in some way, some form. I have a goal to start us off, a goal to start us off. I want us, by the end of this campaign, to serve 50 people, okay? We're just going to do this nice and like, softball. Just, I think we can do 50 people. We already have five, so we're 10% of the way there. Boo! Look at that. 10% of the way there, right out of the gate, okay? But friends, I want you to use this opportunity. 
I want you to use this opportunity in your own life. And I really want to encourage you to use this opportunity that we have right now at this pivotal time in Christianity to make sure, just make 100% sure that when it comes to being a fan versus a follower, we are people who are actively trying to follow Jesus. Let's use this as an opportunity to make that shift to actually giving more of our actual selves to the cause of the kingdom. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.